Well, my thanks go to everyone who has been a part of this service, and particularly on behalf of myself and Sherry, we are thankful for our church family that we can know that as we dedicate ourselves to raising our children well, that we have a loving family that will support us in that and support the other families in it. And what better way to acknowledge this than to go into a sermon about the creation of the first family. So that is where we're going to be today. As we look around, it is no secret that we live in a fallen world. You need about 0.3 seconds looking at any news program or newspaper or news app or however you get your news that our world is broken. You just have to take a look at the past week. War in the Ukraine, war in the Gaza Strip, mass shootings, natural disasters, man-made crimes and catastrophes. But if you are looking for maybe the most obvious and probably the most close-to-home evidence of the fallenness of the creation in which we live, probably the most convincing proof to my mind is to look at the state of the relationships between man and woman. Sexual immorality, extramarital relationships and pornography, gender confusion and sexual identity crises, partner abuse of every imaginable description, abandonment, utter failure to fulfill God-given gender roles from every party, the state of the relationship between man and woman is a mess here on earth. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I will say that, Lord willing, we're going to get to the reasoning behind this horrible circumstances and problems that our world finds itself in and that we find ourselves in. It's hard for us to believe sometimes that God once called our creation very good. But before we get there, we have one last week where we get to look at something that we can't even imagine. Creation without sin. Relationship without sin. Perfect and very good. More specifically, man, woman, and the first and only, for a little while anyways, perfect marriage. So before we, in our pessimistic temperaments, zero in on the beginning of everything that is wrong with the world, particularly between men and women, let's remember that rightly understood manhood, womanhood, and marriage are creation ordinances. They were good creations of God from the very beginning. God created man. God created woman. God created marriage. And each of these, at one point, before the fall, existed in a state of perfection. And in this account that we get into this morning, Lord willing, we'll be able to see clearly some things that we can carry forward and that by God's grace we could see resurrected maybe in our lives and our relationships. We can also see how these things point to far greater things and are designed to bring God glory. 
So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, and just a side note, if you're looking around and paying attention, there's new Bibles in the pew in front of you. They've been donated, so if you need a Bible and you don't have one, take one of those ones. That's what they're here for. But if I remember, I'll be able to give you page numbers. I don't need to look in my Bible to find the page number for this first reading. Page 1. We're going to read Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It kind of gives some background to what we're about to get into in Genesis chapter 2, which, spoiler alert, that'll be on page 2. But Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. And part of the reason why there are new Bibles in front of you is they match translation I'm preaching out of, so you shouldn't have to do too much mental gymnastics there. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the bird of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the first account of mankind, we have the first mention of the two genders, male and female. And I think it's interesting for us to clear up some confusion here. Given our English wording, when man is made in the image of God, that is Adam. Literally the word for mankind. That is not specifically um, targeted at the first man that we call Adam. But it is mankind. Male and female, they are created in the image of God. Male and female. And each of those two words in the original text are given their own specific words. So Adam is the overarching word for all of mankind, and then you have male and female, and I'm not going to try to pronounce those words for you, but they help us to see that, and they give us some clarity that the creation in the image of God is not specific to biological males. It is not just Adam, our forebear, who was created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Mankind, male and female, were created in the image of God, and that lays for us a foundation that we need to remember and remind ourselves time and time and time again of the total, total and complete equity of and quality of value of the genders before God. Men are of no greater value to God than women. Women are of no greater value to God than men. 
Man, male, and female, both individually and corporately united, bear the image of God in creation and together bear the mandate of God to bear that image forth in creation, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over it. So that lays for us some groundwork, because now we're going to get into the specifics of the creation of Adam and Eve, but before we get there, we need to recognize that both Adam and Eve and every male and female that have been created since all are created in the image of God, though that image be tarnished by sin. So our passage today, it zooms in. This wide-angle view is that male and female are created by God in his image. And then in Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, we get the creation of man and woman. So Genesis chapter 2, that'll be on page 2. And we're going to look at verse 18 running through to verse 25. Genesis 2, 18 to 25, if you would read that with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. In our previous messages on the creation narrative, we've already established that mankind, humanity, is on a total different plane from the rest of the land-dwelling creatures. We get our own dedicated origin story, and we get our own dedicated um, creation part of the narrative, and our story differs from the rest of the creatures. First, we are created not simply after our kinds, but we are created after the image of God. And another difference is that with mankind in our passage, it seems that there was a delay between the creation of the first male and the first female. God creates Adam. He forms him out of the ground, breathes life into him, and Adam goes about the task that he is given. God brings all of the animals to Adam. So he begins his work. He begins naming these creatures, and as he does so, it seems that there is this implied sense of loneliness. Something is not as it should be. Each of these creatures exists according to their kinds, and yet no suitable helper was found for Adam. 
first man. And this, God has already identified, was not good. I find it interesting that in verse 18, God identifies, not that he didn't already know, but he states it for our benefit in this passage, it is not good that man should be alone. But it isn't until verse 21 and after the naming of the beast that God rectifies this not good situation. God created something that was not good. Why? For a good purpose. We'll get there. That, ten that tension, the anticipation, seems to be intentional on God's part. And I think a huge part of it is God wanted Adam to realize as well that this was not good. That Adam would realize his need for a helper, realize that a suitable helper was not found for him. He did not have his corresponding peace. And I think God letting Adam realize this before giving it to him accomplishes two things. First and foremost, it causes Adam to praise God for the provision that God would give him a helper when no suitable helper was found for him. The first thing is pointing Adam to glorify God. And it also causes Adam to be grateful for and to the helper that God has provided, the woman Eve. Adam had been put to work, and as he worked, the need for a helper grew progressively clearer and the absence of that helper became progressively more noticeable. We all know that old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, in this case, absence makes Adam's heart yearn for something that doesn't even exist yet. He sees God bringing these animals around and goes, well, there's male and female cows. They have their kinds. And male and female doves, and they have their kinds. Where's... Where's my other? Adam yearns for something that God is about to create. God always saw, and Adam eventually came to see, that he needed a helper. And that term helper has become sticky in our time. Isn't a helper inferior? How then can we reconcile Eve's role as a helper with her equal value and dignity as being created in the image of God as we saw in Genesis 1? And ultimately the best example we have is the example of our Lord Jesus. In Philippians 2, we're told that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By taking on the form of a servant, the human body and nature, Jesus was no less God. He was, still is, and always has been God. And yet he humbled himself, becoming obedient. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, in submitting his human will to the Father, is not becoming inferior to the Father. Jesus was never anything less than what we profess him to be in the Nicene Creed. True God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being. Jesus was never anything less than God the Son, eternal. But in submitting his human will as the second Adam, Jesus submits as Adam ought to have submitted, and thereby succeeds where Adam has failed. Does that mean that Jesus, because he submitted, is a lesser version of God? A subordinate version of God? Do we have God the Father up here and Jesus down here because Jesus had submitted? Or do we truly believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, each person fully God, and that there is only one God who is perfect in all ways? If we confess to orthodox, which means right, Trinitarian doctrine in accordance with the truths that the church would understand from Scripture, we believe what Scripture has to say about the Trinity, then we can't help but believe that the Son was, is, and always will be of equal worth and value to the Father. And similarly, though obviously different with us being creations and finite beings, though us being God's creation, we follow the pattern that God has created in us. Wives are of totally equal value and worth within a marriage relationship. And that doesn't, if the husband is the head of the wife, if there is leadership, and authority to be held by the husband and the wife as a helper, that doesn't change her value. That doesn't change and make her of lesser, lesser value or a lesser person, but a difference of roles. So yes, the word helper can be tricky if we misuse or misunderstand it, but the Oneness, the one flesh that man and wife become in marriage, mirrors that oneness found in the Trinity. It's meant, marriage has always been meant to point us towards the truths of God. The actual force of the word helper, as found in our passage, is not one of necessarily superiority and inferiority. One is better, one is worse but of complementarity, this particular level of complementary relationship where the one being helped, Adam, he is incomplete without his helper. He is unable to finish the task on his own, and he does need a helper. Adam required help in order to accomplish the purpose that he had been given. God chooses to create this helper for Adam, And when Adam sees this need for a helper, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Remember again that we are pre-fall here. So whether, so when you look at Eve's role as Adam's helper, when you look at Adam being the first in the creative order, we don't yet have the fullness of the hierarchy that would develop in the fall, but we do have defined roles. And probably most importantly in this passage, we also have the unity of humanity and equality of value before God. Eve is taken from Adam, meaning they are of one substance. They are of each other. Mankind was created in the image of God, man first and woman second, but both in God's image and even before the indication of marriage, we see that they are indeed one flesh for the woman has come from man. And again, with the rest of creation, God is seen as the giver of good gifts. God created the earth and the sea and the sky and the animals and the plants. God created the garden and placed Adam in it. God gave Adam the instruction to work and keep the garden. He blessed him with that. And then God creates Eve and God brings Eve to Adam. I think all of us can be pretty clear on the natural human enjoyment of love songs and love poems. And if you want the first one of these moments, look in the first pages of your Bible. God creates woman from man, brings the woman around, and the man instantly becomes a poet, breaking forth in humanity's first poem. Now, to us today, it might not read as a poem. We speak English. This is not in English. But for those of us who aren't well-versed in Hebrew language and poetic form, um, there are plenty of people who are well-versed in Hebrew language and poetic form, and this is man's first poem. These very first words of a human recorded anywhere in Scripture are those of Adam's poetic exclamation at God's gift of a suitable helpmate found in Eve. Mankind's first words is a poem. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For those of you who have your Bibles in front of you, that's why you'll see usually this particular exclamation by Adam is offset into the passage to indicate that it was a different style of writing. It's a poem. But at last, the very first not good has been reconciled. For those of you who are musically minded, one of my favorite things in music is when there is a dissonant chord, a chord that just doesn't fit and it bothers you and it's like that doesn't fit in the song and then you, it builds and swells and then there's this chord that brings that dissonant chord to a resolution. You're like, ah, that it was meant to be there. This chord di doesn't feel right and then there is another chord that makes you kind of relax and release and there it is. The good gift that God gave Adam of Eve becomes all the better because 
he allowed Adam a time without Eve to realize that things had not been good. He yearned for that partner, that helpmate. Again, we don't have the hierarchy and the, at least in the negative light in which it's viewed today, we don't have this above, below, higher, lower, better, worse relationship between Adam and Eve, but Adam does demonstrate his authority in the relationship with Eve by being the one to give her a name. That dynamic of authority and submission that is a creation dynamic, that is how God designed marriages to be, that existed pre-fall, meaning it is not a bad thing. And it's easy for us, particularly in our culture that hates everything about that, to start feeling like it is a bad thing. But it is good. For here there is no sin nor abuse of authority. This design is God's good gift and plan for his creation, mankind, both male and female, two good creations in good relationship with differing but good roles. God had placed man, Adam, in authority over Eve, woman. And in the fall, these roles are corrupted, and they would be abused. But off the hop in the very beginning, they already existed, and they were good. And just because something is going to be abused doesn't mean that if it is God's good creation that we should throw it out. Part of that is because even in this very early creation, the first man and the first woman, the first days, God already knew what was coming. He knew that the fall would occur, that the son would have to come and die and his church might be preserved and saved. And the goodness of this relationship and the roles within this relationship between man and woman, Adam and Eve, authority and submission, the love and concern, the openness and transparency which we get from Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. All of that is designed for a reason. All of that is designed to be that way for a reason, pointing to the greater picture of Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Marriage has always been meant to point towards the gospel. And that is why God's design for marriage cannot be tampered with. Because to tamper with God's design of marriage is to tamper with our presentation of the gospel. God created one man, one woman, becoming one flesh for the rest of their life for a reason. And to call anything else marriage is to lie about what the gospel is. Marriage has always been meant to point towards Christ and the gospel. And that's why we have to guard it so jealously as God's church.
As Tim read from Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And quoting from our passage, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Even from the garden, the very first man and woman, God had already set in motion the plan that would rescue all mankind from the sin that they hadn't even committed yet. And in the first marriage, we get a picture of beautiful, unashamed, uncorrupted love from the first husband and the first wife, and we get something that at that time would have been unrecognizable, but now, thousands of years later, looking back, we see the gospel at play here. The story of Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall should absolutely be used to pattern our relationships with one another, our marriages. However, if all we see here is an ABCs of marriage, we miss the greater scope of this picture. Marriage and romance and sex and all of that stuff that comes with it are all good gifts of God when they are used properly. They're used by God to reproduce the human race and to be sources of great joy and blessing. And the even greater gift that this snapshot of the one and only perfect marriage that has ever existed, it points towards the bridegroom and his church. The one who is the head and before whom we are pleased to humble ourselves in submission. We find our joy and hope in him. We are to love him so much that our love for father or mother or son or daughter or spouse and even our own life should appear as hatred in comparison. The book of Genesis is pretty old being written likely by Moses. And his original audience, they wouldn't have seen Jesus here. No, they saw their forebears, Adam and Eve, and the incredible provision of the Lord God. They would have seen as they read this, this is how a marriage ought to look. This is how God has designed marriage to work, and we should see that. But God, by his grace, has continued to reveal himself to us. And as that progressive revelation has taken place, we now have Christ revealed. 
we now know that we have this incredible example of the perfect marriage. And yes, we ought to pattern our marriages after what we see here. But God has also designed this for his glory to point towards the gospel. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So if you have found a good and faithful Christian wife or husband, praise God as Adam did. Become a poet and just worship God and go, God, you have given me a good thing. Worship him for you have been favored by God. And it is my prayer and the prayer of the elders and the prayer of so many in the church that God would bless the marriages that are represented here. If you are unmarried, seek the one that you can mutually worship and praise God for his good gifts. That is what marriage is meant to point us towards. And each one of us ought to use the gift of marriage as God has created it to glorify the creator of marriage by following his blueprints for marriage. If I built the first hammer and I see you trying to use it as a wrench, my first thing is going, that's not what that's made for. You're going to break it. You're, this is not what it's made for. And marriage was made to point us towards the gospel. And if your marriage is not pointing towards the gospel, if you are doing marriage wrong, meaning not in accordance with what Scripture says, then it is not pointing towards the gospel. And God is sitting there going, that's not what I made it for. So when your marriage is pointing towards the gospel, praise God for that. If your marriage is not pointing towards the gospel, seek that it would be. Seek what Scripture tells you about how man and wife ought to act and interact. If you have a husband or a wife who doesn't believe, the Bible speaks to that. Continue to pray for your spouse that they might come to know the Lord. Continue to represent Christ before them that they might come to know the Lord and continue to be faithful in your work. But more than just earthly marriages, as incredibly as important as those are, that is the building block by which our species exists. But even more than that, we should determine that both our human, earthly marriages, as well as our role as the bride of Christ, the church, ought to point us to glorify God that he has set this emotion from before Adam and Eve ever even existed, that we might be saved, that we might have right relationship, that he might come and rescue us and save us as his people and that he might wash us clean of our own sins and present us before himself as righteous and spotless and without blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. And that is accomplished in Christ's work on the cross. Our marriages point to the marriage between Christ and the church. 
and has been meant to do so from the very, very beginning. So we worship the good creator who so lovingly created us, mankind, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. We love our neighbor as ourself. And we become one flesh with our spouse. We live in loving community with one another. And in all of these things, we seek that every part of our lives would point towards the glory of the gospel and the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. So don't lose the gospel implications just because we're in the second page of the Bible. We're not to Jesus yet. We haven't hit the gospels, but the gospel is all the way through and God is setting the building blocks of it. So as the music team comes to lead us in a closing song, would you join with me in prayer? O oh Lord, our God, we confess that we have not always done this well, what you have pointed us to in your word. For those of us who are married, we have not always been good spouses. We have not always been true to your commandments for marriage found in Scripture. And we most certainly have not always rightly followed you as we ought to. We have not submitted ourselves before you as we ought to. So Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our own pride and our own unrighteousness that has led us to place ourselves above you. We ask that you would set us where we belong, that we might see our place in your created order. Our see our place before you as ones who ought to worship you wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth. And God, I pray for the marriages in Elk Point Baptist Church. I pray that you would help these marriages to thrive and flourish, they, that they might continue to do the work that you've created them to do, that these couples would continue to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion over the earth and to represent you before all man. And that these marriages that are represented here might proclaim the gospel even by the way that they are treated and by the way that totally counter to the culture of our world, they follow the pattern that you've laid down for us in Scripture. Give us the strength to live and experience and to see our marriages used this way. Lord, we commit the rest of this afternoon to you. We commit the upcoming meeting to your hands. And we ask that you would be glorified in all things. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.